So there was this archaeologist, he's digging in the Negev desert, and he discovers a mummy. They, so they dig it up, they look at it, and he sends a message to the curator at a prestigious museum. I found a mummy, it's about 3,000 years old, appears to have died of a heart attack. So the curator says, well, that's pretty interesting. Send it on over, we'll take a look. So they sent it over. A week later, the curator got back to the archaeologist, said, You're, you were right, the mummy's 3,000 years old, appears to have died of a heart failure. How did you know that? He said, well, pretty simple, really. The mummy was clasping a piece of paper written in cuneiform. It said, 1,000 shekels on Goliath. <laughs> so that's got to be one of the lamest jokes I've ever started with, right? <laughs> Should I use that in the next service or not? If you think so, yeah, yeah, all right. We'll share the pain. We'll share the pain. I'm going to push pause on our First Peter series uh, as we're moving into our Thanksgiving series in November and then Christmas. We'll come back to it in the new year. But uh, we finished with chapter one, and I felt like that, that's a good stopping point. I want to do just a two-parter right here on the mummy, and then next Sunday will be the return of the mummy. There's an actual mummy in the Bible. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you may know where I'm going, but over there in John chapter 11, we have Lazarus, who was a friend of Jesus, who died. He, was, he died, he was all wrapped in strips of linen, and then he was placed in a tomb. And eventually, Jesus shows up and he raises Lazarus from the dead. So you remember that account? Uh, that's what we're going to be looking at today. So there, there are a lot of places we could go with that, but what I want to emphasize, the overarching theme in these two messages is God's victory over death. That is one thing that's definitely demonstrated, illustrated in the resurrection of Lazarus, God's victory over death. So today I'm just going to say uh, two things about God's victory over death, and then next Sunday we'll say three more. We don't even actually get to the resurrection part until next Sunday. But the first thing that I want to say today is, is that God was determined to have victory over death. God's determination to have victory over death. So Lazarus got sick. His two sisters, Mary and Martha, sent a message to Jesus. He's not in town. They send a message to him. So Jesus receives that message. John chapter 11, verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. It's kind of an odd thing for Jesus to say, since the sickness did end in death. In fact, if my math is right, Lazarus might have already died when Jesus received the message that the sisters had sent to him. So why would he say this? Well, we kind of know, since we know the story, we know Jesus said it's not going to end in death in the sense that ultimately it was not going to end in death because Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead kind of overcome death in his particular circumstance. So he delayed a couple of days, and then he told his disciples, all right, now let's go to Bethany. Lazarus is asleep. I need to wake him up. The disciples objected. They said, the last time we were in that area in Judea, the Pharisees tried to kill you. They're probably going to kill you if you go back. We, we shouldn't do that. But Jesus would not be dissuaded because he was determined to go and to raise Lazarus from the dead. So that's why I call this part God's determination to have victory over death. He has always had that determination, even since the very beginning. We know the account of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They're there in paradise. God has the one prohibitive command. 
Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will die. There you go. That's the one law. That's the penalty. You will die. But Adam and Eve, as we know, they ate of the forbidden fruit. And so God came and He pronounced judgment on them. The curse that it is called. He pronounced the curse. We could call this the curse of the mummy. That could be part one here. The curse of the mummy. Next week is the return of the mummy. But the curse is death. And this is where suffering and death entered into the world. So God pronounced it. But in the same breath where God pronounced the judgment, He also pronounced His determination to overcome death, be victorious over death. Genesis 3.15. He says to the serpent, the woman's offspring will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So we know this as the first messianic prophecy in the Bible, Genesis 3.15, where God says, he makes this pronouncement. When he says, the offspring of the woman, of course, he's referring to Jesus. When he says to the serpent, you're going to bruise his heel, he's talking about the crucifixion. When he says, though he will crush your head, he's talking there about Jesus' resurrection. In Jesus' resurrection, he crushed the enemy Satan, and our last enemy, death. He was victorious over death for himself and for all of us. So even as Adam and Eve began to die, God was already working for their salvation to overcome death for them. In fact, before they began to die, because this plan was in place the moment he decided to create our world and a certain kind of world. Jesus says in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. God is determined. That's his determination to have victory over death. All right, the second thing we want to say this morning is God's limitation in his victory over death. God's limitation. John eleven twenty one. 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. John eleven thirty two. 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Two duplicate statements. They are said by two separate people. These are the two sisters of Lazarus. And when Jesus finally comes to Bethany, Martha, the first sister, meets him at the outskirts of town. And this is what she said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then later on, he encounters Mary. Mary says the same thing. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. You kind of get the impression that when Mary and Martha were sitting and commiserating at the wake or at the funeral, and they're talking together in their grief, they're saying, you know, if Jesus had been here, things would be different. He's a miracle worker. He's a healer. He could have prevented this from happening. And it just comes out when they see Jesus. The, the inference is, where were you? Why weren't you here to prevent my brother our brother from dying. Now, we can relate to that. All of us can relate to that. We've all had our experience with suffering and death and premature death and unjust death. And this is a, a universal question. Where is God when it hurts? Where is God when we hurt? This is one of the more common, maybe the most common objection that unbelievers have to believing in the God of the Bible is unjust suffering and death. 
And the argument goes like this. The Bible presents God as omnipotent and good and loving. Well, if God is omnipotent, which means he has all power, and God is good, the omnipotent part means he could prevent suffering from happening. He could prevent death from happening. And if he is good, then he should want to prevent those things from happening. But he doesn't, at least not always. And so they conclude that means he's either not omnipotent or he's not good. That's the objection. Now, most of us here are believers, so we probably overcome that objection in order to become believers, but we might still struggle with it from time to time. Dr. John Claypool is a minister who's written a book entitled Tracks of a Fellow Sufferer. And in there, he writes about his little daughter who had contracted leukemia, and she is wasting away from this disease. And he says, one night he was at her bedside, and she said, Daddy, are, are you talking to God about my leukemia? And he says, yes, honey. We're praying for you. Everybody's praying for you. And she said, Daddy, did God say how long my leukemia is going to last? And John Claypool writes, what do you say to your daughter when she is dying before your eyes and you're beseeching the heavens, but the heavens are silent? And shortly thereafter, she passed away. Now, that's not necessarily your story or mine, but we have a story, or more than one. We've had those kinds of experience. Ellie Weissel wrote the book Night. You might have read that book. It's a very difficult book to go through. He's a Holocaust survivor. He, he writes of his experiences there. And he says the day he saw a 10-year-old hanged in the concentration camp was the day his God was hanged as well. Biggest challenge to his faith, unjust suffering and death. Well, we're, that's why I call this God's limitation. Now, that may sound blasphemous, but let me explain. Why is an omnipotent God and a good God allow these things to happen? This is not the whole explanation. Entire books have been written on this, series of books. I'm just going to touch on one thing, but it's a big part of the explanation. God's limitation, number one, is a self-limitation, right? Nobody else has limited God. Nobody else can limit, to, limit God, but God has limited himself. Secondly, the area of that limitation is in the area of God's will. In other words, there are certain things that happen in this world that God doesn't want to happen. It is not his will that they happen, but he permits them to happen anyway. I'll give you an example. Peter writes, 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not wanting anyone to perish. He does not want anyone to perish, and yet some will perish. There are things that happen that God does not want to happen, but he permits them to. And the third thing to say about this limitation, it's a self-limitation in the area of his will. It is because God has created a world in which there are other beings besides himself with free will. Theologians call it, it's the free will argument. We understand God has free will, but he allows us to have free will as well with, with genuine, authentic choices to choose either obedience or disobedience, and those choices have genuine consequences. 
God pays us the intolerable compliment of taking our choices seriously. It's not to say that everything you as an individual suffer or the death in someone's experience is the direct result of a disobedient choice. I'm not saying that. Many of the things we suffer are, but certainly not all of them. Children are born into a world that's tainted with this curse and can suffer because of other people's sinful choices. But when you look at the origin of it, it's because God decided to create a world with free will beings. So, for the rest of our time this morning, I'm going to read a book to you. It's a children's book called Because I Love You by Max Lucado. And so, uh, and it illustrates, I think, well, what we're talking about here. So just let me be your Grandpa Jones for nine or ten minutes here, about ten minutes, and, and read to you, because I love you. There are pictures in the book, and there'll be the, the slides as we go. Long ago in a land far away, and unlike any you've ever seen, there lived a wise man named Shad. Shad was a large man with a tender heart. He had bright blue eyes and a long, thick beard. And when he laughed, which is something he did often, his cheeks would lift until his eyes became half moons of joy. When he sang, which is something else he did often, everything stopped to listen. Tall aspens would bend, squirrels, butterflies, and birds would pause. Even the children would turn when they heard his voice, and well, they should it was for him, them that he sang. And for the children, Shad had built a wonderful village. It was more than any child could dream. The children plunged into the sky blue pond. They squealed as they soared high on the swings, hung from apple tree branches. They scampered through the meadows and giggled in the orchards. The sun never seemed to set too early and the cool night sky always brought a quiet peace. And most of all, Shad was always near. When Chad wasn't in the meadow with the children or in the orchards with the children, he was in the workshop with the children. They loved to be with him while he worked. They loved to smell the sawdust and hear him sing and watch him carve a chair out of a log or make a table out of a tree. They would gather around him and take turns pressing their tiny hands flat into his great big one. Every night he would gather the children on the grassy meadow and tell them stories. And fascinated, the children would listen as long as Chad or their weary eyes aloud. The children loved Shad, and he loved the children. He knew each one by name. He knew everything about them. He knew Lucy's love of birds and Roland's fear of darkness. And Daphne was friendly and Spencer shy, and he knew Paladin was curious. When one of them called his name, he dropped whatever he was doing in turn. His giant heart had a hundred strings, each held by a different child. And Shad loved each one the same. And that's why he built the wall. The wall was a high stone fence surrounding the village. Shad had built it rock upon rock. The wall was so tall it stood high above him. Even if he stretched his arms as high as he could, he still couldn't touch the top. He spent days building it, and as he built, he did not sing. A deadly forest stood outside the village. As Shad built the fence, he would often pause and look into the shadows beyond. Cruel thorns and savage beasts and hidden pits filled the dark forest. It was no place for the children Shad loved. Beyond the wall is danger, he would tell the children. You were made for my village, not for the terrible land beyond. Stay with me, it's safe here. But in his heart, he knew it was only a matter of time. The day he placed the final stone on the wall, he returned to his shop, took a long aspen branch, sat down at his bench and carved a staff. 
Shad stood the staff in the corner. I'll be ready, he told himself. Sometime later, a boy ran into his workshop. The sandy-haired child with the searching eyes and restless energy brought the maker both joy and concern. Shad I. In one motion, the maker dropped his hammer and turned. What is it, Paladin? The boy spoke in spurts as if he gasped for air. The wall. I found a, a hole. It's a big opening, sir. He stretched his hands to so, show the size. Someone could crawl through it. Shad pulled over a stool and sat down. Well, I knew it would be you, Paladin. Tell me, how did you find it? Well, I was walking along the wall and searching for holes. Paladin paused, surprised that Shad knew. Yes, I was looking for holes so you could see into the forest. Well, I was curious. I wanted to know why you won't let us go out there. Why is it so bad? Shad motioned for the boy to come to him. And when Paladin came near, the maker cupped the small face in his hands and lifted it so the boy would look directly into his eyes. The urgency of the look caused Paladin's stomach to feel empty. Paladin, listen to me. The lands out there are not for you. They are not for me. A journey into the forest will hurt you. You were not made for those lands. Let your feet carry you into the many places you can go, not to the one place you can't. If you leave here, you will not find the way back. Paladin spoke softly. You will fix the hole then? No, Paladin, I created the hole because I love you so much. But you just said you don't want us to leave. I don't want you to leave. I want you to stay with me, but I did make the opening when I built the wall. But if you don't fix it, the children might leave. Well, I know, Paladin, but I want the children to stay because they want to, not because they have to. Paladin did not understand. Uncomfortable, he turned to leave. He needed to think about what Chad had said. As he entered the sunlight, he looked back into the shop, and there sat Chad, leaning backward, still watching. Paladin was confused. Part of him wanted the safety of Shad's shop, while another part drew him toward the fence. He looked again into the shop. Shad was standing now, not moving, but standing, his large hand stretched out to the boy. Paladin turned quickly away as if he hadn't seen. He walked as fast as he could, aimlessly at first, then purposefully toward the fence. I won't get too near, he said to himself. I'll just peek out. And questions came as quickly as his steps. Why do I want to do what Shad doesn't want me to do. Why am I so curious? And is it so wrong to want to see beyond the fence? By now, Paladin was at the hole. Without stopping to think, he lay on his stomach and squirmed through just far enough to stick his head out the other side. I'll just take a quick look. What could be wrong with that? Shad said he made the hole because he loved us. I wonder what he's keeping from me. As if his knees were moving on their own, Paladin crawled farther, and soon he was through the hole and on the outside of the wall. He rose slowly to his feet. For several moments, he didn't move. He wondered if something would come out of the trees to hurt him. Nothing did. He relaxed his shoulders and sighed. <laughs> it's not so bad. It's nice out here. What was Shaddai worried about? Paladin began walking into the forest. Twigs snapped beneath his bare feet. Sweet flowers scented the air. I don't see any scary creatures, he thought. The trees were so thick he could barely see the sky just a few steps into the woods to see what it's like. After a dozen more steps, he stopped. He liked the wilderness. Nothing to fear here. And for the first time in his young life, he believed that Chad was wrong. Just wait until I tell the others. And he turned to go back through the hole. But the hole was gone. He stopped and stared. 
he saw only a solid wall. Paladin ran to the wall. Was this the spot he had crawled through? Or was it somewhere else? He couldn't remember. He ran a dozen steps one way and then a dozen steps the other and nothing. Suddenly he heard a strange sound in the woods behind him. He swung around but saw nothing. He looked into the forest and now it no longer seemed friendly. It was dark and threatening as if it were about to destroy him. Desperately, Paladin searched the wall. He couldn't climb over. He couldn't break through. There was no way home. Shad's words rang in his mind. If you leave here, you will not find the way back. The boy's eyes were wide with fear. He sat on the ground and hugged his knees to his chest and began to cry. As Paladin huddled there, lonely and afraid, he remembered something else Shad had often said. I love you so much. Does he love me enough to come and find me? Wondered the boy. Will he hear me if I call to him? Shad, I'm so sorry I didn't listen to you. Please come and help me. Paladin's plea had been heard by the one who loved him, even before it was spoken. For as the boy left Shad's workshop, the maker had watched him as long as he could. When Paladin was out of sight, Shad turned not to take up his work, but to remove his apron. He hung his tools on the wall, and then he reached into the corner and took the staff, the one he had carved after he finished the wall. Even before Paladin had reached the wall, Shad had left the shop. Even before Paladin had asked for help, Shad was on the way to give it. Even before the hole in the wall had closed, Shad had opened another. His hands pulled away the rocks until he could see into the forest. And with his staff at his side, Shad crawled through the hole. He left the village he'd made and set out in search of his child. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, this is a familiar story to us. This is the story arc of the life of every person in here. We've approached that wall, we found the hole, and we crawled through. We too have sinned and rebelled against you and your commands. And we have found ourselves helpless and hopeless on the other side of the wall. Lord, faith, thankfully, we know how this story ends. We know that you came looking for us. We know that even before we sinned, you had provided the solution for us, for our suffering and for our death, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you, our Father, for coming and rescuing us, your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.